All right. I'll take some other questions on those quizzes, but we need to move on. Numbers. Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers is really important because Numbers is is quoted many, many times in, 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 in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. You can't understand a lot of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about if you don't have a good grasp of the events that are covered in uh, the book of Numbers. So let's uh, pull up our PowerPoint here. Numbers is primarily focusing on what? Wandering in the wilderness. Wanderings in the wilderness. So if you want to have a phrase, not the one I have up there at the top of the top, as a title, but just if you want to have a phrase to remember numbers, wandering in the wilderness, that's what's going on. What they mean by the wilderness is really desert. I mean, you go to that area of the, country, of the world and it's, it's a... It's a very, uh, very dry, uh, sparsely vegetated area. They're wandering in the wilderness. So here we have our cartoon. Here we have our cartoon of a bunch of numbers wandering around in the wilderness. That's the book of numbers. I said already, Genesis is just think beginnings. Job, suffering, exodus, exit from Egypt, Leviticus is priests and offering, Numbers is wandering in the wilderness. No, it's just a phrase. It's a, this is sort of a, what they call mnemonic devices. A mnemonic devices is something just you can synthesize a book or a word down into a phrase. It helps you to remember remember. Uh, well, you have. Whenever we're, we're working on memory, we need to have like uh, I use the analysis, the analogy of a closet in your head. And before you, when you, you can get a whole lot of data, and you can just throw all your clothes in the closet and let them all pile up on the floor. But that doesn't do you a lot of good. You have to have something to hang all the data on. And so you have coat hangers. But what do the coat hangers hang on? A rock. And so the rod is its wanderings of the wilderness. That's just a summary of, of everything that's in the book. It's about their wanderings in, 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 the, uh, in the wilderness. It's a tale really of two generations because it begins with the Exodus generation who, are, who end up being rebellious and they are not allowed to enter into the land. And it ends with the what will become the conquest generation, the children of the Exodus generation, who do enter the land. The Exodus generation is made up of believers. Uh, You can go back through Exodus, and again and again and again, you can find the same phraseology in Genesis. They believe in the Lord. And if you look at it, and what's interesting, if you take that phrase, and you look at how the rabbis translated that into the Greek Septuagint. They used the same uh, Greek verbiage, the verb pistuo for believe, and the object indicated by the Greek preposition ace. And that's the same thing you find in Genesis 15:7. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Again and again, hey, you have that same terminology used. 
John picks it up in the Gospel of John. Every time John expresses the concept of faith in Christ, it's this phrase, pistuo ace. And so that indicates clearly that the Exodus generation is saved. Now, there are people who come along and say, no, they weren't saved, they were disobedient, and if they were really saved, they would have been obedient. I don't believe that's true. I believe that that Christians can be as disobedient as non-Christians can. And they they are rebellious. Uh, there are, of course, among them those who are not believers. Not every single one was was uh, a believer and saved, but they were primarily treated as a group of saved people. But they are rebellious, and they are used as an example of that in the New Testament, First Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, first, uh, Hebrews, uh, several times in the book of Hebrews, they're referred to in that way. Okay, let's get into the introduction. The Hebrew title for the fourth book of the Pentateuch derives from the fifth word in the first verse in the Hebrew. Remember I said that usually it's the first word phrase in a book that is the title of the book in Hebrew. The word bemidbar means in the wilderness, which is the location for most of the events in the book. So that's the Hebrew title. The English title... Second point, the English title Numbers comes from the, or derives from the, uh, there's a misspelling there that should be derives, not uh, fix that. The English title derives from the Greek title in the Septuagint, Arithmoi. What English word do we get from Arithmoi? Arithmetic, very good. See, we get a lot of our English words directly from Greek or Latin. Arithmoi meaning numberings, and this refers to the numberings or the censuses of the people taken at the beginning and again at the end of the book. So there's two censuses taken. There's one that's taken at the beginning, which is to find out how many soldiers they're going to have, how many men they have over the age of 20. And then that, of course, the first one relates to the Exodus generation. Well, the Exodus generation fails to trust God and be willing and enter the land when they send the spies into the land. Most of you are familiar with that story. And so they're prohibited from entering the land. God disciplines them. They have to all die off, and the next generation, their children, is going to be the generation to enter the land. The Exodus generation is marked by unbelief, and the, their children are marked by belief. They learn the lesson from their parents. And so as they get ready to enter the land at the end of the book, some 38 years after the beginning of the book, they have to take another census to find out, once again, how many men there are over the age of 20. Now, roughly speaking, in both cases, you have approximately 600,000 males over the age of 20. Now, conservatively speaking, if you have one woman for every man then you would have a total of how many adults over the age of 20? You'd have another 600,000, which means you have a total of how many adults? A little arithmoy here. 1.2 million. 1,200,000. Now, uh, if you have one child, the average one child per couple, which I think it would be a conservative guess, you would have another how many people? 600, another 600,000, which means you would have a total population of 
1.8 million. Now that's a lot of folks to be dragging through the desert. Think about the logistics. Think about the fact that you've got you've got cooking issues. How's that solved? God provides manna. You've got water issues. You've got what about their clothes and their sandals? See, none of that wore out. It was just God provided for you. It's a great lesson in how God takes care of us. The issue is, are we going to relax and let God take care of us, or are we just going to get all fired up and try to do it ourselves? One of the basic lessons of application in the book. The census was taken, as I say, in 3C. A census was taken as the nation left Sinai at the beginning of the book, and then again as they prepared to enter the promised land. Second uh, major uh, issue in the introduction is the date and the writer. It was written approximately 38 years after the Exodus. Now, why do I say that? Because when the book ends, when Numbers ends, you're now with the, with the conquest generation, and they're getting ready to enter the land. Okay, so 38 years has gone by. Moses can't write the last part of the book of Numbers until it happens, can't he? So this probably wasn't written in 1445 because it's not prophecy. It would be written toward the end of that period, so just roughly around 1408, 1406. You know, anything in that period is, is acceptable. We don't know uh, exactly like I have in the notes. There's a little CA in italics before that number, and that is from the Latin word meaning what? Circa. And that means what? Yeah, about approximately something of that nature. There's a, once again, it's a book in the Pentateuch. So there are two views of authorship. Most evangelicals believe it's written by Moses. Conservatives believe it's Moses because we believe not only in what the Bible claims in various places that it is written by Moses, Numbers 1-1, Numbers 33-2, Numbers 36-13, but also that Jesus quotes from the book of Numbers and references Moses as the author, Matthew 8-4 and John 1-45. However, liberals and their critical approach to the study of the Bible reject the truth of the Bible, treat it like it's any other book, and have their own theory that's known as a documentary hypothesis, which we covered in the first class. Now, who is the, who's this written to? Who is this addressed to? Who, who is this primarily concerned with? It's the younger generation, the conquest generation. The folks are going to go in, uh, and they need to learn from the lessons of their parents. The lessons in numbers are primarily... Uh, negative lessons. There, we learn from the mistakes, the disobedience, the rebelling, the complaining of, of uh, this generation. When you come to uh, Ephesians, uh, I believe, or maybe it's in Philippians, uh, Paul writes, do all things without murmuring or complaining. What do you think's in his head? He's thinking about the Exodus generation. That's the picture. See, what's always important is you get in the New Testament, you've got doctrine that often we teach is just abstract principles hanging out there in space. But there's a connection between these principles because the illustration for them comes out of the Old Testament. So I, I try to encourage my teachers at church to make those connections. 
especially when you're teaching with children, because children tend to be less uh, capable of abstract thought. So go back and, and flesh out those principles through Old Testament uh, illustrations and, and the people. And, of course, that's more challenging because there's so much in the Old Testament, and most people just don't know it, so they need to be in an Old Testament survey. <coughs> Purpose of the book. The book begins with the Israelites the second month of the second year after the Exodus, and it ends with the Israelites in the tenth month of the fortieth year after the Exodus. So it covers thirty-eight year period. The second, the first Passover occurred when? First Passover occurs when they're leaving the land, when they uh, it's the, to protect them during the tenth plague. The second Passover occurs one year later on the 14th day of the first month of the year. Now this is their ceremonial calendar. Later on they, they revise their calendar a little bit and they go to a civil calendar. Now let's see, when we just got through celebrating Rosh Hashanah, which is their new year, and Yom Kippur, which is the day, uh, the day of atonement. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement and Rosh Hashanah is the new year, but that occurs when? That occurs in the fall. That's the, uh, uh, that's the civil calendar. So that's one of the issues you have to work through uh, sometimes in studying the Old Testament is are they working with the civil calendar or the ceremonial calendar. So here we're working with the ceremonial calendar. It's the second month, the second year after the Exodus, after they celebrate the second uh, Passover. Second point, we have to remember the tabernacle was first constructed at Mount Sinai during the year that they're there. They get the revelation of the law. They get instructions on on the garments for the priest. They get instructions on all the furniture for the tabernacle and how to construct the tabernacle. And it takes them a year while they're there to uh, do that. Uh, a month later, after they celebrate the first or uh, the second Passover, they depart for the promised land. This is Stated in Numbers 1.1, it's the second month, the second year, the first day. So we would write that as 2.102. Hill and Walton, in your book, your chart book, offer, um, or excuse me, Hill and Walton, in their book, survey the Old Testament. <coughs> Walton is the one who does the chart book that you have. Uh, give you the the uh, breakdown, the chronology there that I have between point 4D and 2C. And that is something you can just go over. There's things like this I try to put in your notes so that if you go back and you are doing a study of this, teaching in Sunday school or something of that nature, then you have this material as reference material that you can look to. What we see is that, uh, if you just just briefly going over the chart, the exodus from Egypt occurs in the 15th day of the first month of the first year. They arrive at Mount Sinai the first day of the third month. So you see that took them about six weeks to go to Sinai. So wherever Sinai is located, it's about uh, somewhere around 60 to 80 miles from their departure point. can't be any more than that because of their you know, amount of distance that they can travel. Then God reveals himself at Sinai. They complete the tabernacle. Uh, <clears throat> then they're, they, they're commanded to, in Numbers 1-1, at the... Um, now, now, 
the computer kind of, it, it's difficult for me to put these tables in here. The completion of the tabernacle is on the first day of the first month. Look at that line. See, it kind of bumps up. The completion of the tabernacle is the first day of the first month of the second year. That's in Exodus 41 and 16. The command to number Israel is on the first day of the second month of the second year. That's Numbers 1-1. The departure from Sinai is the 20th day of the second month of the second year. And that's in Numbers 10-11. So the first ten chapters of Numbers, they're still where? They're still at Sinai. Then they arrive at Kadesh Barnea, the first month of the 40th year. This is the second arrival at Kadesh. On Numbers 20, verse 1, Miriam dies. The first month of the 40th year, same verse. Aaron uh, dies the first day of the fifth month, four months later. Um, that's in Numbers 20, verse 29. They depart from Moab the first day of the sixth month, one month later, after 30 days of mourning for Aaron. Uh, Moses addresses Israel in Moab the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year. That's, that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 1, 2, through 3. Uh, Moses dies in his 30 days of mourning. That's uh, Deuteronomy 34, 8. And then Joshua and Israel enter Canaan the 10th day, first month of the 41st year. So that's your chronology, your basic broad chronology of what happens during those, those 40 years. 2C. The book describes their travel from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab, east of Jericho. From Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab, east of Jericho. Now we'll see when we look at a map here that that's not very far. Somewhere in this area is where... where they cross the Red Sea, they come out here, and they somewhere, most people believe, somewhere in this area is where the uh, Mount Sinai was actually located. Not the traditional site, which is down here at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Most uh, conservative biblical scholars, archaeologists, do not believe this is the site. Uh, then, they're probably somewhere up in here, then they head up to Kadesh Barnea, and then they basically spend 40 years right in this area. They're not going very far. If you go from walk from Kadesh up here to uh, the southern part of the Dead Sea, cross over here, come up around. And this was their route, and came around this way. Uh, according to this map, they come back down. To, this is the Gulf of Aqaba. This is uh, where Ezion Geber is located. It's a modern uh, Jewish resort city of Elat. And they crossed over into this area is now modern Jordan, and they came up on the east side of Edom and Moab, and then they crossed back over uh, the Jordan River up here, the northern edge of... That's about maybe... If you were to drive that by automobile, it would probably take you less than four hours. Less than three. So we're not talking about an area where they were... Uh, wandering around because it took them a long time to get there. So that God wasn't, they were just marking time for everybody to die. And you had, where's Jericho? Jericho's located right here at this red X. 
Yeah, Jericho, I mean, if you're standing, Jericho's about 15 miles from the crossing of the the Jordan River. You you can't see, you can see the mountains in the the valley where it's located from the crossing there at the Jordan. It's all very close. I may have some pictures I'll try to show. No, I'd say if if you start here at Kadesh, then you come up this way, and then drive down south, and then you come back up the other side. That's probably no more. You could do that in a car today along the highway for in probably four hours or less. Yeah, they were when when they get ready to uh, re-enter the land, they, they they come back to Kadesh and, and go. Kadesh Barney is an important place because that's the site of their failure. Okay, the 3C, their travel, I point out, is not direct. They move from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, but because they fail to trust God, they end up just marking time. 4C, after 38 years, God brought this second, what? No, no. 4C, after 38 years, God brought the second generation again to Kadesh, and then around the borders of Moab to enter the land. Because Moab, remember, because Moab and Edom are relatives, they are prohibited from crossing their land or fighting with it. They're not Canaanites. Remember Moab? Where's Moab come from? That Lot. His, his daughters got him drunk and they had incest. And so uh, that's where Moab comes from. Edom is the descendants of... Esau, Esau. So they aren't supposed to enter those those territories. Of course, King Moab is threatened, and he wants to hire a, a prophetic hitman, so to speak, to come in and curse them. We'll see that. Five C. This time is a period of discipline for the nation. Because they have, over a period of 38 years, they're going to have 1.6 million people die, roughly. Or 1.8 million people die, roughly. Everybody over the age of 20 has to die in that 30-year period. 600 plus thousand men, approximately the same number of women. All the adults over the age of 20 die, except for Caleb, Moses, I mean, the top of that should be Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. See, I was, I realized I had left this out this morning. And I got a phone call just as and was doing that and talking on the phone at the same time. Joshua and Caleb are the only two of the exit generation to enter the land because they were willing to trust God. And then chapters 1 through 14, chapter 20 through 36, we have preparation of the next generation to, uh, let me see, let me go to the next slide. I just left that out. Okay. Here's your fill in the blank there on 5C. This was a, it, um, see, I've got that here. I was trying to guess on it earlier. Okay. We'll get the bottom part of that slide. 
the t- time was a period of discipline. That's the first film of life. Discipline for the nation and preparation for the next generation of the land. Now, this is your broad outline of the of the uh, of the book itself. The first 14 chapters, from 1 to 14, you have preparation of the first generation and their failure. And the second part of the book, from chapter 15 to 36, we had the, uh, the, excuse me, the preparation of the next generation. That's how that should be broken down. From 1 to 14, you have preparation and failure of the Exodus generation. And then 15 to 36, the preparation of the second generation. Yes. Should read chapters 15 to 36. That's just a broad structural kind of thematic way of looking at it. In 6C, you have instructions for how the nation's order of march through the wilderness. God doesn't just say, okay, organize yourself. He gives them specific instructions as to how they're going to march, which tribe's going to go first, which tribe's going to go last, where the ark's going to be, where the priests are going to be. Everybody's got to follow a set procedure. God, what you should note from this is God isn't a God of just randomness. Everything is laid out when he gives us instructions for, and, and the same thing is true for the spiritual life of the Old Testament, it's for the spiritual life of the New Testament, is that, that it's not based on what we think, what we feel, our own subjective impressions. We can't come in and define things the way we want to define them, uh, based on what it feels like to us. There's instructions for how the priests and the Levites are to operate within the... Uh, with a mobile sanctuary. That's what the tabernacle was. It was when God lived in a mobile home for the first uh, about six, uh, about 400 years. Never thought about that way, did you? Seven C. The book describes both the physical journey of the people as they go from Sinai to the plains of Moab, but also the spiritual journey because of their failure, the discipline, and then uh, the preparation. And so as part of this we see the book explains the consequences of unbelief. That there are, and this is where the writer of Hebrews picks it up, is that that even though God deals with us in grace and salvation is by grace and spiritual life is based on grace, nevertheless there are consequences to failure and to disobedience. The book explains the consequences of unbelief, yet demonstrates God's grace and faithfulness in light of Israel's disobedience, rebellion, apostasy, and complaining. Are they still God's people? Is the Exodus generation still God's people? Yes. And just because they were disobedient doesn't mean they lost their position in God's plan, but they lost the privileges 
that they would have received if they had been obedient. They, they missed out on incredible blessing. So that brings us to 4B, which is the theme. The theme of this book is the importance that God's chosen people be set apart to Him in order to fulfill His purposes for the nation. In other words, God uses people who are obedient and set apart to Him, not perfect people, not people who are sinless, but those who are walking with Him, those who are following the uh, mandates of Scripture, because they refuse to trust Him and refuse to apply the word then God is not going to use them to enter into the land. <coughs> 5B, I give you some basic um, basic structure that you have uh, in the book. Uh, that should read, there's another typo there. I keep, every time I go through this, I straighten out more typos. Um, that the first one should be chapters 1 to 10, God's provision for the people of the triumphal march to Kadesh. And the second one should be 22. I hit two twice instead of one twice. should be chapters 11 to 21, God's patience with the people and discipline. Or you can look at the book another way and think of the first 25 chapters as the first generation march in the wilderness. And chapters 26 to 36 is the second generation march to the promised land. That's the basic structure that I that I like is two basic divisions. 1 to 25 is the first generation's march in the wilderness. By 26, you're dealing with the second generation, and this covers their march to the promised land. Okay, the numberings in Numbers, 6b. The design of the census in Numbers. This is taken from Hill and Walton's survey of the Old Testament. The purpose, or the design for the census in Numbers, is to ascertain and recruit the manpower for war. We've got to know how many, what our physical assets are. How many soldiers do we have? That's given in Numbers 1-3. Second is to be able to allot work assignments in the forced labor gangs and in the religious cult. Now, what I mean by cult here, or what they mean by cult here, this is taken right out of their book, is a cult is used here in a sense that you don't use it. When we use the word cult in normal everyday use today, we're thinking about somebody who is uh, distorted, perverted. They're in some sort of uh, yes, sir. Okay, I have five B structure. Six B is the numberings and numbers. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. I've I've got I've got yours here. See what's happened is I've gone in and cleaned up your notes. Didn't clean up my notes. We got five B was theme. Five B should have been theme. 6B is structure, 7B the numberings and numbers. Okay. 1C is the design of the census and numbers. And there are five reasons that you have the 
census taken. One is to determine how many men are available to fight in wars. Number two is to determine how many you have available for work assignments in the labor gangs and in the worship in the tabernacle. So a lot of work assignments in the forced labor gangs and the worship in the tabernacle. Third, uh, to establish a basis for taxation. To establish a basis for taxation. And what do we call the tax? Yes, ma'am. Oh, um, go ahead. What do we call taxation in the Old Testament? Tithing. That's right. Establish a basis for taxation or tithing. Uh, fourth, to order the Hebrew tribes in marching and camping formation. So everything is going to be uh, tightly structured when they march and where they camp. Every night they're going to uh, know exactly that. If you're moving too many people through the wilderness, you have to be very organized. And everybody's got to know exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it, fall in line and, and move yeah. out. <clears throat> and then fifth, to contribute to the organization former slaves into a unified people. This is one of the difficult problems here. You have, this is one of the reasons they fail, is they have a slave mentality. They're, they're more concerned with security than they are with freedom. Freedom has what? The risk of failure when you have freedom. The risk of failure. And if you fail, there's no, there's no safety net. You just fail. But you're only free to succeed to the degree you're free to fail. Think about that. You're only free to succeed to the degree you're free to fail. So if you provide a safety net where it protects people from the consequences of failure, then it's also going to limit opportunities for success and for freedom. Because the more you you try to provide security, the more you tighten up control by the government. So that's why you, you, you either have liberty or you have security. They're not. They're mutually incompatible. And that's the problem. They want to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt. They want to go back where there's security rather than having a vision for the future. And you see that. I see that so much in, in churches where you have people who just don't have a vision for the future because it involves risk and change and possibility of failure. So let's just... Do, do what we've always done, and then we know what we'll get. Even if we don't like what we all what we always get, at least we know what we're getting. So we don't risk. Okay, there's as I pointed out already, there's two censuses taken in Numbers. There's one listed in chapter one, and the second one is listed in chapter twenty-six. The first census was in the second month of the second year and counted the males in the Exodus generation. The second census came in the 40th year and counted the males in the second generation of post-Exodus Israelites. Both counts were taken of Israelite men who were of fighting age, 20 years and older. And in the chart here, uh, you have a breakdown of how many were in each tribe. You have, for example, Reuben mentioned in 120 to 21. There were 46,500 in the Exodus generation, and then 26.5 to 11, there were 43,730. So there's a reduction of about uh, three, approximately 3,000 
in the tribe of Reuben. Uh, Simeon goes from 59,300 to 22,000. Big reduction. Now, you can imagine they must have lined themselves up with one of those rebellions where God killed a large number. Uh, Gad goes from 45,000 to 40,000, the loss of 5,000. Judah increases from 74,000 to 76,000. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Could be because God's blessing them. They're obedient. They're not involved in some of those uh, rebellions that brought about the the, the, the big judgments that we find. Um, we all knew what that was. <laughs> 54,000. Issachar goes from 54,000 to 64,000. Again, no indication of why that applies to Issachar. Zebulun increases from 57,000 to 60,000. Ephraim decreases by eight, almost 8,000 from 40,000 to 32,000. Manasseh increases by 20,000. Benjamin increases by 10,000. Dan uh, by 2,000. Asher uh, increases by 12,000. Naphtali increases by, or decreases by about 8,000. So overall there's a reduction of about 2,000 from 603,550 to 601,730. Okay, the significance of the numbers in the census. This is the top of your top page five. The significance is let me see, where am I putting that? I have a line item there. The greatest increase is Manasseh. By by the significance I'm just focusing on those last three items I put there. The greatest increase is Manasseh twenty thousand, Simeon thirty seven thousand uh, it gives us the indication of how many there were. Uh, we'll see if the numbers are literal, and assuming the men represent about one fourth of the population, the number of Israelites ranges from two to three million people. Houston has a population of about, I mean, Houston, not greater Houston, has a population pushing three million. Can you imagine that taking everybody in Houston? Just look at what happened last year when we tried to evacuate with Rita. Think about that. I mean, this is an impressive feat to take that many people across the desert and into the land. So Moses is has to be a dynamic, powerful leader. And he, he's called the meekest man in the Bible, right? And what does that mean? Humble. What does humble mean? See, I'm going to challenge, I, I bet not one person in here has the right idea of what meekness or humility is. No, it's not even power under control. You got it. It is ori- He's oriented to authority. You get the same thing. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death by being obedient. See, that's what humility is. It's recognizing who's in authority over you, the properly constituted authority, and being obedient to that authority. That's what constitutes Humility. It's the opposite of being pride, being self-assertive. Like who? Who? Satan? Adam. Okay, these they're not humble because they violate the authority that's over them. So 
Moses is, you know, our modern concept is humility and meekness has to do with wimpiness. But that's not what the scriptures portray. Uh, a literal understanding of these numbers is consistent with Pharaoh's fear of the rapidly increasing population of Israelites. He is going to be overwhelmed. Now, there are those who have worked out the numbers. They're in the land for about 40 years. They come in with seven, approximately 70 with Isaac, I mean with uh, Jacob. And then they leave and they've got about 2 to 3 million people. Is it possible over a period of about uh, 400 years for them to grow that much? And it is possible. It would, God would uh, definitely be blessing them because there would be a limited infant mortality and other factors, but uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, beyond possibility. Some people argue that the numbers can't be literal for the following reasons. Now think about this: the line of march would be almost 100 miles long and several miles wide. That's like from, from downtown Houston out to Schulenburg. And several miles wide. That's, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's very, very difficult to imagine that. But that's, that's why they don't make a lot of progress each day. It's just to break camp and move out. And then they go about 10 miles and start forming into camp again. They can't go long, long distances each day. That's why when you look at, uh, it takes them six weeks to go to Sinai, six, that's 42 days, that's not more than 400 miles. Sinai Wilderness did not, they were, some people would say the Sinai Wilderness did not have the ability to sustain such a large number of people and animals, but that uh, that's dealt with by the fact that God miraculously provided for them. And then the third reason people say, well, the numbers can't be that big because Israel was unable to defeat the Canaanites. But the reason they were unable to defeat the Canaanites was because of their mental attitude, not because of their inability. They failed to believe God. The, the, the big test, the big test that they fail is that God, they, they misinterpret the word of God. We'll see that. When they come to, to, to Kadesh Barnea, this is a problem... This is why interpretation is so important. What did God tell them to do? Did he tell them to go into the land and see if they could take it? Or to go into the land to see how they're going to take it? See, they misinterpret the instructions, so they come back and they say, we can't do it. It's a failure of interpretation. They thought they were, they were doing one thing instead of another, so they end up failing to trust God. God says, go spy out the land that I have given to you. They're doing a recon, not to see if they can take it, but how they're going to take it, and just to bring back a report of its value. Okay, then I'll give you a chart that kind of traces the journeys of the people. All right, exposition of numbers. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take a break. It's a good time to take a break just before we get into this. And uh, we'll take about a 15-minute break, and then we'll come back.